Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Praise, Praise be, to Christ. be to Christ. Thanks again, Graham. So we have been in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We're somewhere approaching the midway point on that series. And today we're going to be talking about telling the whole truth the whole time. And uh, just a little bit of a background on this text here. Uh, you may remember maybe two, three weeks ago, um, an explanation of chapter 5, verse 19, which is where Jesus dis curiously described the Pharisee and scribe habit of what Jesus called relaxing the law of God. Now, that, that's a very strange way of talking about scribes and Pharisees because because we know and understand the scribes and Pharisees as being more rigid, not less, more strict, not less, more legalistic and moralistic, not less. And, and, and yet Jesus says they're guilty all the time of relaxing the law of God. And what he's talking about there in reference to today's scripture uh, is how the scribes and Pharisees were always adding loopholes uh, to the law of God that had been given through new laws, loopholes in order to make the commands of God less fierce, less forceful, and more manageable to them and to their tribe. Um, this particular text envisions the scenario that Pharisees and scribes have created to enable them to weasel out of their promises and to weasel out of their commitments. And essentially, the, the, the summary teaching of the scribes and Pharisees was this. If we make a promise, but we don't swear to the Lord, then we have a loophole. We can get out of it later if, if it doesn't seem expedient or convenient to keep that promise. And you see Jesus expounding on this further in chapter 23 of Matthew's gospel, where he says, you know, and he's rebuking them, by the way, the, the scribes and Pharisees, and he says, if you swear by the temple, you say it's nothing. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you say that you're bound by oath. Or if you swear by the altar, you say it's no big deal. But if you swear by the gift that's on the altar, you say that you're bound to the oath. And so what he's saying here in the Sermon on the Mount is this. If you make an oath, whether it's by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head, and you think it's okay to renege because you have not technically made your oath to the Lord, you're severely mistaken. Because Jesus, who is not only an all-the-time truth-teller, but who is the truth, says that all of these things, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, your own head, they all belong to God. So if you swear by them, you're swearing, it's as if you're swearing to the Lord. So, so in our family, in the Saul's household, uh, I happen to be married to a woman who is gullible. 
I can, can, I can get my wife, Patty, going on just about anything. Uh, and and um, she believes me. And some, somebody approached me, one of our elders, actually, Webb Yance, a- approached me after the, serve, the early service and said, the reason why Patty is gullible is because she's trusting, and the reason why she's trusting is because she's truthful. And I said, you're absolutely right, but she's gullible, and it's fun. Um, but we have this little sort of... Um, you know, trump card that we have in our house if one of us feels like the other is trying to, to dupe us. And it is to say, do you promise? And the moment she says, do you promise? I'm bound to tell the truth. I'm bound to tell on myself. Yeah, I've just been messing with you. And so what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in a less jovial and more serious way about this text is that the very existence of oaths is a proof that there are such a thing as lies. Therefore, the oath must go, according to Jesus, since the oath in this context is the protection for the lie. You can lie as long as you don't say you promise. You can lie as long as you, you can renege on your promises as long as you don't swear to the Lord, as long as you swear to something lesser than than God. But when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, on the one hand, he's, he's not literally forbidding oath-taking under any circumstance because we see even in, in the early to mid-chapters of Genesis, God making an oath with Abraham. I will be faithful. Even if you're not faithful, I will be faithful, and I swear by, by an oath, by my own name, that I will follow through with my promise. And so he can't be saying never take an oath because God took an oath himself. And, and the, the context of the ninth commandment, you know, you shall not um, bear false testimony, was actually given for the context of the courtroom so you wouldn't perjure yourself in the courtroom context. And so what Jesus is getting at here is this. When you make a statement or a declaration or a promise to somebody you need to recognize that you're always in court. You're always under oath as a follower of Jesus. Every lie, every deception, big or small, is perjury before the courts of heaven. And so, three headings today to to sort of get a little bit drilled down a little bit deeper. Shed our mask, name our lies, and then believe the hardest truth. So, those those are the three headings. First, to shed our mask. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, that's verse 22, I think, or no, 25, he says, put off falsehood. Now, now the Greek word there is the word pseudo. The English dictionary would define the term pseudo as a sham, a phony, false. So, the philosopher who became a Christian later in life, Blaise Pascal said this, and this, this is sort of the, the psychology beneath uh, falsehood, according to Pascal. He said, we are not satisfied with the life that we have in ourselves. We want instead to lead an imaginary life in the eyes of others in order to make an impression. So, Pascal is just saying we all wear masks in order to Um, gain the approval of people around us. And what Jesus is saying is essentially beware of the mask. And there are two masks that I want to sort of drill down on here for the next couple of minutes. First 
is the mask of virtue, and then the second one is the mask of self-protection. So, so first, the mask of virtue. This was the scribes and Pharisees' air that they breathed. This was the food that they ate. This was the, the drink that they drank. The mask of virtue. And, and, and I think it's important for people like me to recognize these were the Bible teachers and the religious professionals and the pastors of that time. And the nickname that Jesus gave to them is hypocrites. Now, for us, hypocrite is always a pejorative term. It's always, we always receive that, that term or use that term in, neg- in a negative sense. But, it, but for Jesus' original hearers, it wasn't a negative term until Jesus used it this way. Because what a hypocrite was, was a stage actor. That was the word that you would use for a stage actor. And a stage actor would, would put on a mask for, for a season of time, maybe two or three hours, in sort of the Shakespearean era, era or what have you, and pretend to be somebody else uh, while on stage. And what Jesus is saying to, to the Pharisees and the scribes is, your whole life is on a stage. Your whole ministry is your stage. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's pretentious. And, and, and he needles the scribe and the Pharisee in, in all of us throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he calls us out for, for being generous or altruistic because we want to impress other people. You know, kind of get your name on a plaque, and that's why you, that's why you give the gift. Or, or we fast, which is representative of any act of religious piety or devotion, but we do it in order to be seen by others. Or, or he talks about how we can tend to, to pray these lofty, uh, you know, you know, erudite prayers in order to impress the people around us. He just says that it's built into the human heart. It's built into the human psyche to want to to get love and approval and favor from the people around us, and and that's really what we look to to be our Jesus instead of looking to Jesus to be our Jesus. That's what's beneath it all. So, a um, friend of mine, pastor friend of mine named J.R. Vassar, uh, he and I were, were pastors together in New York City at the same time, and uh, J.R. has since moved on to, um, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but um, in his transition to, to, you know, out of New York into Texas, he wrote this book uh, that, that's, that's called Glory Hunger, and, and in that book, he's talking about how this scribe and Pharisee impulse is in all of us, and he, he tells on himself a little bit. And, and he tells this particular story, and this is the part of the book that's, that stuck with me the most because it's so relatable to me. He says that he was at an event where a friend of his uh, was speaking to a very large room of people, and as a result of and through that, that speech or that, that talk that his friend gave, tens after tens after tens of of people entered into a relationship with Jesus as a result of that one talk. And, and J.R. describes how he began weeping at that outcome of that particular talk that was given by his friend. And he said, everybody around me thought that my tears were tears of compassion and joy. And, and that's partially true. But what I really felt more intensely than anything else was this, and, and, and here's what he says, I was jealous I wanted God to do great things, but I wanted Him to do great things through me. 
I wanted to stand out. I wanted to be told how gifted I was and patted on the back and praised for my success. I wanted glory that comes from people, even if it meant stealing glory from God. So Nietzsche talks about this uh, in, in, in a different way. When he, and this, this was uh, Nietzsche's theory of altruism, his theory uh, about generosity, his theory about why anybody does anything virtuous for somebody else. And his theory was this, it was very cynical. Nietzsche was very cynical about the nature of the human heart and the nature of human motivations. Nietzsche said that even our good deeds are driven by ego and by insincere virtue so that others will applaud us. This isn't just an inside-the-religious-world hypocrisy. This, is a, this, is, this isn't just a religious problem. This is a human problem, Nietzsche is saying, quite correctly. You know, there's a Simon the Sorcerer inside all of us. If you're a Bible reader and you've read through the book of Acts, you might remember uh, this, this man in Acts chapter 8 named Simon the Sorcerer who witnesses the disciples praying for people and preaching, and, and, and as a result of their praying and their preaching, God performed many miracles through the disciples, you know, healing people of their diseases, you know, casting out evil spirits, um, you know, bringing encouragement to depressed and oppressed uh, souls and hearts, and, and Simon the sorcerer is, is noticing all the attention that's around these miraculous, extraordinary, um, you know, experiences, and he goes to the disciples and he says, I got a lot of money, guys. How much will it cost me to be able to do what you do? How much do I have to pay in order for, for the same type of activity to happen as a result of what I do uh, you know, to, th th that happens with you and around you? And, and of course, the disciples were, were mortified at the request and, and you know, just leveled a, a pretty sharp condemnation toward this attitude and toward this motivation. And yet, these are the same disciples who... who argued at one point about who was going to get to sit at Jesus' right hand and who was going to get to sit at Jesus' left hand in the kingdom. And so, so we're, we're all sort of smitten by, you know, what my friend J.R. calls glory hunger, the mask of virtue, Nietzschean altruism. His theory is on some level true about all of us. But then there's also the mask of self-protection, um, you know, if you're a biology person, you, you might be familiar with the little reptile called the, the chameleon who is able to adapt to its environment by changing the color of its hide, the color of its exterior, uh, to, to match the color of its environment in order to uh, make itself invisible to potential predators. And in a sense, you know, Jesus is, is suggesting that we all have this chameleon effect about us. We have a pseudo-self, many of us do, for different environments. There's, there's the self that I present to you on my resume. There's the self that you experience uh, at, at the office. Uh, there's my online self. There's my home with my roommates or home with my family self. You know, we have, we have a, a, a carefully defined, carefully crafted image or brand for, for whatever situation we enter into, our, our church self our small group Bible study self, our missional living self. I don't know what your motivation is, but I, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I want you to like me. And, and one of the sure signs, one of the sure 
indicators that I'm operating out of the inner chameleon rather than the inner Jesus, you know, who fills me with his spirit, is when I become anxious at the risk of being exposed or at the experience of being exposed as some sort of perceivable fraud. So, I was telling a story, uh, you know, an anecdote to the earlier service about a conversation that I was in eh, probably seven or eight years ago with a room full of Ivy League graduates in New York City, which was a fairly common occurrence there. And um, so, it was often the case that I would be in a conversation like that and feel quite insecure, you know, being the one who surely has the lowest SAT score in the room and so on. And so, in this particular conversation, I, 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 I wanted to drop some, you know, sort of sophisticated words in, in my conversation, and so I dropped the word inertia into one of my sentences as I was talking, and, 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 and people around the room started raising their eyebrows, looking a little bit curious, and, and said, did you mean to say momentum? Um, I think you're saying the opposite of what you, you're, you're trying to say. And, and, and of course, this is mortifying feeling. Interestingly, two English majors approached me after the early service and said, actually, you were, you were not as far off as they said you were. But uh, anyway, I'm wrong in every environment. <laughs> and then there was another similar situation where I used, and this was, I don't know, a few months ago. If you're a medical person, you probably remember this. Uh, I, I was talking about dialysis, and, and one of the the, uh, and explaining the process of dialysis as I saw it, and one of the, the physicians in our church approached me afterward in the hallway and said, you know, you don't really understand what dialysis is. Let me tell you, I'm like, okay, so I just said in front of thousands of people the wrong, in, in, in the Silicon Valley of healthcare where we probably have two or 300 medical professionals in our community, and I just did that publicly. And, and so there's this sort of self-loathing and anxiety that, 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 that happens when I mess up publicly. Which, which is a trigger that tells me that maybe I'm operating more out of the inner chameleon, the inner Pharisee, the inner scribe, than I am the inner Jesus and the inner Holy Spirit. You know, telling myself, you are a poser, and now they know it. You're going to get kicked out of the club. You're going to be dismissed as irrelevant. You're going to be disregarded as a, a fraud. So, you could call this maybe a real-time sermon application, telling on myself, because when, when Jesus says, let your yes be yes, He's calling us into a unique, otherworldly kind of courage. It, it is a distinctly Christian virtue to testify against yourself, to testify against yourself is a distinctly Christian virtue. You know, James 5.16 says that when you are exposed as a fraud, when you're exposed as being out of line with a gospel, when you're exposed as having a phoniness about you, the answer to that is not to put your best foot forward. It's not to cover your tracks. The answer is confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. And we see this played out beautifully and tragically in 2 Samuel 12. Remember? You know, David, King David, for a time, lost his way. He was a fraud. He was a phony. He was a murderer and a whore. And, and his friend, his true friend, Nathan, you know, Oscar Wilde talks about how a true friend stabs you in the front, not in the back, but in the front, comes to your face and says, you're wrong. And that's what Nathan does with David. 
David, you're a sham. David, you're a murderer. David, you're a whore. You got into bed with another man's wife, and you're trying to cover it up, and it's just your life is lies upon lies upon lies. And David, from his position of power, could have turned back to Nathan and said, who do you think you are? You know who you're talking to? He could have immediately had Nathan executed and, and, and just continue the cover-up. But, but, but what's David's response instead? I have sinned against the Lord. And then we get Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of confession out of that experience. And what is the dominant word in Psalm 51 but chesed, the Lord's unfailing love? It's the Hebrew word for grace. You know, Brennan Manning says this. He talks about renouncing the imposter in his book, Abba's Child. He says, when the imposter draws his identity from achievements and and the adulation of others, you know, from success and achievement and money-making and name-dropping and all the other things, the true self claims identity in its belovedness, not in the acclaim and affirmation of others, but in your belovedness. Because in Christ, to the chameleon in all of us, Christ says you have a protective layer, so you don't have to change colors anymore. You've got a protective layer that covers you. It's called the righteousness of Christ in the sight of God, in the sight of the judge in the courtroom. If it's true of Jesus, it's true of you if you have faith in Him. You are free emotionally if you'll only access the resource that is yours already. You are free from having to live out of the fear of man. You're free from having to be a fake, a phony, a fraud. You're free because you have a protective layer, and it's not going to go away. So shed your mask, and then name your lies. Here's how Jesus names it in in verse 37. Lies come from evil. Lies are wicked. There's no such thing as a good lie. There's no such thing as a virtuous lie. Satan is the father of lies. Hell exists because of a lie that was told and then believed and then lived out. It's Satan's native language, and it's also the air that we breathe. In a, in a recent survey, 60% of college students surveyed admitted that they had cheated or plagiarized. In the professional world, many of us, it's the air that we breathe from you know, Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, half-truths, obfuscation, spin, deceit. Politics, it's a world of caricature. On this side, we've got the devil who can do nothing right, and on this side, we've, we've got the Savior who can do nothing wrong. It's all spin. No wonder the next generation is so cynical about the world of politics. I'm talking about politics, not government. You know, government is something that God has instituted and God is committed to redeem. The world of politics is it's just full of lies. Social media, where, where, where we, we, we present a persona instead of our personhood. CNN just did a, a study recently, and, and they're, they're finding in, in this pervasive study they did is that the average person is lied to anywhere between 10 and 200 times per day. Why is this so serious? Because it's not just a violation of the ninth commandment, it's a violation of the eighth as well. You shall not steal. Because what, what every lie and every deception does is it steals the truth from somebody else. And it forces them to w- live in a fake world without their consent. It's a way of trying to play God in somebody else's life. 
turning them into a puppet instead of letting them be a person. It's deciding for them, you know, it's getting all, you know, Colonel Nathan Jessup on them. You can't handle the truth. And so let me handle the truth for you by manipulating it and taking away your right to judge and decide for yourself. In a way, it's a, it's, it's, it's a stealing of somebody else's dignity and personhood. It's incredibly paternalistic. You know, Dallas Willard puts it this way, a lie is a device of manipulation designed to override, designed to veto the judgment and will of the people that we lie to, to push them aside instead of respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. And so, when we have stolen reality from somebody, what is the gospel response? It's the same response as it would be if you had stolen money from somebody. When, when, when Zacchaeus stole money he, he, and became a follower of Jesus, he immediately said, I'm going to make restitution. And you got to make restitution with the truth as well. When you've stolen the truth from somebody, you've got to give it back to them to, to reinstate their personhood in your eyes. You know, this was one of the very first areas where I came under conviction when I became a follower of Christ at age 21. Because just the summer before, I had stolen a pair of shorts from my employer. I worked for an athletic club. And so one of the very first things that I did as a Christian was write a note to the accountant at that athletic club confessing what I did. And I said, this is going to sound really weird to you. And I know you could probably punish me for this. You could probably get me in trouble for this. But here's what I did, and here's why I'm telling you. Because I follow, now I follow someone who says that he is the truth. And so I'm called to be truthful. Tell the whole truth the whole time. And here's $50. I, I, I think the shorts were probably like 40 so I actually paid interest on the shorts. And he forgave me. The other thing that I did was I wrote the president of the university that I just graduated from and confessed to him that I cheated on an exam. And, um, you know, that was a bigger risk, I think, than the shorts because he could have taken my diploma away. And, and here I am with kind of life and career ahead of me, and I'm in this conundrum. I've stolen the truth from, from somebody. I've got to give it back. And thankfully, he responded graciously and such. And that's not the point. The outcome is not the point. Integrity is the point. There's too much at stake to be a fraud. When the, the one that we claim is master is the truth. A better alternative to all of this is to let your yes be yes. Or as Mark Twain says, always tell the truth and then you won't have to remember anything. You won't have to dig yourself out. Live your life like a prescription drug commercial. One of my favorite anecdotes was Tom Watson, the golfer, as a teenager. Tom Watson was, was and is a Christian follower of Jesus. And he was playing in his first state tournament as a teenager. And he was getting ready to putt the ball, and it was very tight, you know, you know it was very close. The match was very close, and, and, and he, his putter barely hit the ball, and the ball moved, and it came back to its original spot. And nobody saw but Tom Watson. And immediately, he, he looked up, and he said, where's the judge? And he, he, he told the judge, he said, my putter hit the ball. It should cost me a stroke. And cost him a stroke, cost him the hole. 
Why would anybody tell on themselves when nobody else is looking? Here's why. Because somebody is always looking. You're always in court. Always. You're always under oath. That brings me to the last thought, and, and that is that we have to believe the hardest truth. And the hardest truth to believe is this, that that somebody loves you dearly, and that's the truth. That's the truth. He loves you in spite of you. Now, we chase love using the, the strategy that Pascal described, you know, living the imaginary life to make an impression. And what Jesus does is He points us to, to liars, Jacob, whose name was liar, you know, who stole his own brother's birthright by deceiving his blind father. And how does this gracious God respond? By making him the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Or David, who I, I've talked about a moment ago. You know, it's, it's right there in the genealogy of Jesus. David gave birth to Solomon by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. It's right there. And yet, this is also the David of whom Jesus is referred to as the son of David and the man after God's own heart. That's his identity in the sight of this somebody who's looking all the time. Or Peter, who out of the fear of man reneged on the promise that he made to Jesus to follow Jesus all the way to the death. And, and when it came time, his yes became a no. And he denied Jesus three times. And who is the person that Jesus is most concerned understands how loved he still is after the resurrection when Jesus looks at the women who, who show up at the tomb and says, go tell the others and especially tell Peter. It's right there in Mark's gospel. Tell Peter that I'm coming to him. How would our lives be different if we believed the truth that God loves us more than we love ourselves? That that safe, protective layer over us is permanent, that, that He has literally saved our hide. If we really believe that the true story that Jesus has written about our life is better than the fiction that we want to present to the world outside of us. You know, Bonhoeffer said this, and this is our lead-in to the Lord's table, the cross is God's truth about us. When we know the cross, we are no longer afraid of the truth. So the Lord's table, the Lord's supper in front of us, we do this weekly for the same reason that Martin Luther said that he preached the gospel to his people every week. Somebody asked Luther, why do you preach the gospel every week? And he says, because you forget the gospel every week. And so we do this every week because we have chronic amnesia about the grace of God. Here is the truth. Because of the cross, in the sight of God, you are completely righteous. The righteousness of Jesus covers you, and so you've got nothing to prove. You're completely forgiven, and so you have nothing to fear. You're completely loved, and so you have nothing left to hide. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what the gospel means. And the irony is this. The irony is this. Hear this. Hey, Don, you still got the, the recording running? This is really important, I, I think, for anybody who listens to hear. This is like the whole summary of the whole message. It's this. Jesus, who is the truth, saved your hide by going into the court of God and committing perjury. 
And it's the only act, the only virtuous act of perjury that ever happened, where he went in and testified against himself. Treat me as the one who sinned against you. And he testified on our behalf. Treat them as if they had never done anything wrong, as if they'd never, ever deceived. And it's in that virtuous act of perjury, of self-donation. Usually people commit perjury in order to throw somebody else under the bus to protect their own hide. Jesus committed perjury. Maybe that's not the right way to put it. You know what I'm saying? Jesus said something that was not true in our defense in order to throw himself under the bus and protect us from ourselves. If that is not enough, if that is not enough to compel us to tell the truth the whole time, we're missing something because we can't handle the truth. Jesus handled it for us to save our hide. And so now we can come to the table that He set for us when He said on the night that He was betrayed, He broke bread, and He said, this is my body given for you liars. And this cup is a new covenant in my blood given for you perjurers in the cosmic courts of God, your Creator. Do this as often as you drink it and eat it in remembrance of me. This is a table of grace. This is a table of truth. The cross tells us two things. Number one, you're right there with David. You're right there with Jacob. You're right there with Peter. You're a big fat liar. You're a poser. You're a fraud. So am I. And there's a bigger word that covers all of that. So you don't ever have to change colors again. And that bigger word is you're beloved. You were worth the death of God. And now he calls you the beloved. So as the servers come forward and as the children come in, let's offer a word of thanks to God, and then we'll come to the table. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that because of what Christ did in your court, throwing himself under the bus in order to save our hide. Along with Jacob and David and Peter and any and everyone else that you have called to your family, you have a word of blessing and benediction and belovedness that you pronounce over us to cover our lies and cover our fraudulent behaviors and motives. Thank you for this, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.